In this interview, I'm joined by Glenn H. Mullen, a Tibetologist, Buddhist writer, translator of classical Tibetan literature, and teacher of Tantric Buddhist meditation. He divides his time between writing, teaching, meditating, and leading tour groups to the power places of Nepal and Tibet. In this interview, we discuss Glenn's early fascination with Tibet, his decades of rigorous study in India with the Dalai Lama's two personal gurus, Glenn's life-changing meditation experiences, enlightenment and orgasm, and we delve into the six yogas of Naropa, a tantric system full of fascinating techniques such as data yoga, tumo, dream work, and more. So without further ado, Glenn Mullin. So Glenn, you arrived in the Himalayas in 1972 and had the good fortune to study with many of the great masters of that era. But before we go into that, and I would like to ask a bit about that, why the Himalayas and why Tibetan Buddhism? I think those kind of questions have sort of short answers and long answers. <laughs> I suppose the short one is that uh, my mom was a British war bride from England and her dad, my granddad, had been in India at the turn of the last century. And in uh, 1903 or four, young husband, the uh, young British army officer, was pressed to make a treaty with Tibet and couldn't, so he invaded. And while he was in Lhasa, the few weeks he was in Lhasa, he went into a trance and sort of became a mystic. So from that time on, Tibet with the Brits, especially the officer class families, was this kind of mystical places where even a hardened army officer, even going in as a military exercise to demand a treaty, will fall into a mystic state. <laughs> so my mom was kind of in love with all things Himalayan, all things Asian. Uh, and uh, as a teenager, I read a lot of books and had that ex exposure. And uh, really, I, I think all things Asian really were very interesting to me. The Taoism, Taoist Tao Te King, and, you know, the Upanishads from India, and the Dhammapada from Sri Lanka, and so forth. But uh, when I was in, after school, I went to London to meet that side of the family, and met a half dozen students of uh, the Dalai elder brother, who was a professor in Bloomington, Indiana. And he mentioned Dalai Lama was opening a school for Western people. Uh, he wasn't going to teach there himself, but he'd appoint the teacher and oversee the curriculum. Basically, because he had so many people showing up in Dharamsala asking for, for teachings, uh, the, the transmissions, and he thought it'd be better to put together a formal program. So I heard of that, saved my shekels, and went there the next year and joined the program thinking I'd study for three years, but after three years, it really just scratched the surface. I went for another three and still had just scratched a little deeper. Finally, it became 12. And uh, I probably would have continued studying, but um, then I had to go back to Canada for something. When I was out of the country, Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated. So we Canadians lost our uh, unlimited visa access to India. So after that, I started going for just six months a year when the Dalai Lama would give uh, teachings and transmissions. And I think uh, a lot of these things are karmic in the Buddhist sense that we think some sort of instincts from previous lives. And uh, 
as I remember when I was just in my late teens and I was reading a book on Tibet and just seeing the name Dalai Lama was a little bit like being zapped by a taser, except in a very joyful way rather than a painful way. And I felt this instant kind of camaraderie or connection. And when I went to Dharamsala, uh, I had no idea how that would pan out, but it was really just like coming home after a long journey to a beloved homeland. And just the Dalai Lama was such a wonderful human being. And I thought, well, maybe it's just him. And then I met his two gurus, and they were equally wonderful. I mean, just totally unostentatious, down-to-earth, warm and humorful and communicative as one can possibly imagine. I mean, it was like being uh, my dad's side of the family is Irish. It was like being out in the pub with a bunch of Irish friends all basically smiling and laughing and radiance shining from their eyes, except without all of the yelling and shouting. Less Guinness. <laughs> You're mentioning uh, karma there, and I've heard you talk about how it's one thing to be enlightened, an enlightened master, and quite another to be popularly enlightened, um, that some masters are very well known, and others who may be just as realized live in relative obscurity. But you've met many teachers, both hidden and public, what would you say are the qualities of a great master? Were you always able to spot them when you met them? Not really. Uh, you know, in Buddhism we say you can only see as high as you are. And so you can't really see enlightenment. Only other enlightened beings can see enlightenment. So Tibetans use the expression, Sengeng Ango, looks like a Buddha to me. <laughs> <laughs> So I've met many lamas with great reputations and very famous in their own schools of Tibetan Buddhism and stuff like that and didn't see any inspiring qualities. I mean, they were all nice guys and all that sort of thing, but I didn't see any enlightenment qualities. But in the Dalai Lama and his two great gurus, Ling Rinpoche, Trishan Rinpoche, as well as the two lamas he had chosen to be our tutors, uh, Geshe Rabdin, who later went and lived in Switzerland, sent by the Dalai Lama to Switzerland, and Geshe Darge, who later the Dalai Lama sent to create a program in New Zealand. Those five were just totally like radiant elves, just smiling air to air and just uh, almost levitating when you looked at them. They just barely seemed to have it's almost like they were made of pure sort of angelic energies, but in a very down-to-earth, humorful, communicative, joyful way. Uh, in terms of qualities of a master, I think it's not really how great the master is, but the readiness of the student or the trainee to connect with that person. So I would say of my, you know, I studied with about 25 or so different teachers over the years because Tibetan Buddhism is more is very strongly connected to specific lineages. Every school of Tibetan Buddhism has a couple of hundred lineages coming into its school from India over the generations and centuries. And so each one of those lineages will have something of a unique line of transmission. And so one tends to, if one is... Uh, of that disposition, one can study and receive many of those different lineages, especially 
if you have some sort of teaching karma, if you wish. And so uh, between 25 and 30, 35 different teachers, of whom uh, 20, 20 were very important to me. Hmm. And the ones who were very famous were you know, no more wonderful in some ways than the ones who were less known, but of course in a slightly different way. It's like you can go to hair, I don't know, uh, U2 play somewhere and you'll hear of someone who's great and famous and you can go to a local pub and hear someone play who's equally fabulous uh, musically but just whatever whatever reason doesn't have the same public profile so uh, in terms of my own teachers there were many who are very unknown in the public just simple uh, lamas or monks who had you know received lineages practiced on the retreats and so forth and had maybe you know half a dozen students and wouldn't didn't wasn't really looking or open to doing many of doing more than that in the teaching world unless ordered by their gurus to do so in the buddhist world we say to be a good teacher you need to have great compassion and you shouldn't have any favoritisms among students if they're intelligent or stupid or rich or poor or powerful or ordinary and so on and you should have the motivation only to benefit and thirdly you should be more accomplished than they are <laughs> so it doesn't mean every teacher has to be a fully enlightened master because otherwise everyone will walk around saying i'm a fully enlightened master so the idea is they should have received lineage uh, done the practice been authorized or authenticated as having achieved some success in the practice and being uh, worthy of the worthy of trans giving transmission what's that process of authorization and authentication what does it involve is it a simply a confidence that the person has understood the material well enough to pass it on or is it that the person has somehow achieved uh, the outcome of the material Usually it comes down to uh, one of one's uh, lamas, one of one's gurus, telling one that the time has come to start teaching. And so that that's kind of like the graduation degree, I guess you could say. Mm. So if one's uh, if one one of one's main teachers tells you that. Well, now you've been training for you know 20 years. You've gotten enough uh, of a grip on things and enough uh, both. We talk about Dharma in two ways, Lung Bei Chu, Tok Bei Chu. So Lung Bei Chu meaning the words or the intellectual understanding and Tokpa meaning realization. So those two should be sufficiently matured, you could say. Mm. Given that one can only see as high as one's gone, what was your experience in finding teachers, given that you're perhaps not in a position to assess them at that beginning stage? Well, I think uh, Tibetan Buddhism is a little complicated in that you have so many schools, and then you've got the tradition, different traditions of how one becomes a lama. Like, for instance, in Karakupa, if you do a three-year retreat, you're uh, allowed to use the title Lama, even though 
you may not have gotten much understanding in those three years because they're done in, in group retreats of 20 people. So you basically do more devotional practices than, than study practices. Other schools have much higher uh, requirements, I suppose, if that's the right word for the use of the word lama. But it really comes down to if you meet someone who's teaching and you really feel at home with them and you, in the great Pabanka Diching Nyungpo, who was the guru of both of the Dalai Lama's main gurus, wrote in his text that the the that the greatness of the teacher is re, is reflected in the teaching, and so if you if you carefully test the teacher, and the teacher should test the student, and uh, testing there just means observe objectively and patiently for a period of time until you really feel that that person is someone who is you can rely upon, and. Uh, it's really a personal choice in in that way. If one, I think in the Tibetan tradition, the easy part is that in every school, they do have an, their own kind of hierarchy and a well-documented way of becoming uh, a teacher or becoming a, a master of the practice, a master, of, as they call it in Tibetan, a, a rigzin or a tenzin a holder of the doctrine or a holder of the lineage or something like that. Mm. As well, because it's a very well-organized tradition, which is very different than, say, some of the Hindu schools where people just sort of pop up around here and there without much, you know, because of the 500 years of Muslim occupation and 300 years of British occupation, their transmission methodology tends to be less precise. And, of course, in the West, in the Christian world, they just sort of pop up by chance because the ways of training in the different Christian schools are so radically different than one another. And the idea of even being a great master is kind of a, since the, the inquisitions has become a rare phenomena. Mm -hmm. But the Tibetan is one, is I think special in that it is a living tradition that came into the modern world without much interruption. You know, basically until the Chinese invaded Tibet in 1951, its lineages had been transmitted in an unbroken line from the time of the Buddha and in a very well-documented unbroken line. So in that way, the different schools do document who is who and what is their training. And that, that helps a lot, I think. In terms of choosing a personal teacher, though, it really comes down to meeting different masters from different uh, lineages and seeing which ones really connect to you, re resonate with on a heart level. Mm -hmm. And when they talk, their words add up. Um, Buddha said three things. First, uh, when you choose uh, uh, anything, first listening uh, critically, and it should make sense to you. And uh, secondly, if you try it on, if you try the practice, you should feel some benefit. And uh, thirdly, of course, is it 
should have an authentic transmission lineage. So what was the um, early training there in the Himalayas? I presume philosophy and meditation, these sorts of things? Yeah, the Dalai Lama had set up a program for Westerners at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives and uh, put a Lama there to teach, and he taught two hours a day. And up the hill, uh, there was another Lama, Geshe, he would, he'd asked to do intensive spring and autumn. So generally... We do two hours of classes a day and about four or five hours of meditation. And then every year do a retreat of a few weeks or a month or so. Mm. And that was kind of pretty standard uh, for most Westerners who studied there. And uh, the Dalai Lama chose the texts that we would study, and they tended to be based on the great Indian classics, you know, the masters like Nagarjuna and Asanga, who were the two founders of the two main Mahayana schools, the Vajamaka or Middle View and Chittamatra or Mind-Only schools, and then the lineages, tantric lineages of the 84 Mahasiddhas. In particular, the Nagarjuna Asanga lineages come to Tibet with the 11th century Bengali master Atisha, who literally, we could say, is kind of the founder of Lamaism. <laughs> In other words, what we think of today as Tibetan Lamas owes more to Atisha than anyone else. He sort of, the way he put together Indian Buddhism as a system of training became very popular in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, so, Nyingmas, Kargyupas, Sakyapas, they all use Atisha's so-called Lamrim and Lojong lineages as the basis of their traditions. And Dalai Lama says, we don't like the word Lamaism, but if we're to say something does define what is the, the Altai Himalayan um, Buddhist tradition of, the, sort of path, transmitted through the, through the Lamas, we would have to say it's very strongly rooted in the transmissions from Atisha. What that means is really bringing together sutra and tantra, the uh, public teachings of the Buddha and the secret teachings of the Buddha. And I've heard you, switching a little to the personal uh, element of the practice, I've heard you use a gardening metaphor, that initially a garden is very fragile and needs constant attention, and then eventually it sort of carries on its own energies and doesn't need quite as much fussing. And I'm curious, uh, what precipitated that sort of a transition in your practice. Um, can you tell us a bit about your journey with meditation in particular, what techniques you have mainly used, what were those initial instructions like, and how has it unfolded over time? Uh, when one first starts to practice meditation, I think the big challenge is regularity. It's like if you're on a physical fitness program, it's the mm -hmm. same situation. One can, with great enthusiasm, throw oneself into a program, but maintaining regularity in the practice really brings best physical health, and it's the same with meditation. So uh, when Buddhism would talk about the six paramitas, the six perfections, the third is the perfection of patience, and of the three kinds of patience, one of them is the patience with your own self and your own practice. A lot of the uh, 
Tibetan meditations are based on the Paramita, Perfection of Wisdom Sutras from the Buddha, which really means bodhicitta, the meditations on love, compassion and so forth, combined with the meditation on what is known in Buddhism as emptiness, shunya, shunyata, which really means the non-duality of being. that, that usually starts with examining the nature of a self because duality begins with the division of the world who there's me and there's the rest of the world. <laughs> and I'm something very solid and hard and really totally separate from the rest of the world and the rest of the world is something cold and dark or whatever, warm and bright, but totally different than me. And so just observing the nature of self and observing how this self-image we have of ourself is actually just a, a, a conceptual a sort of holographic image that takes on a life of its own and has no real substance or no real foundation other than our adherence to it by habit, by instinct and so on. So I think... Uh, that second part, the love compassion meditations for us as Westerners growing up in the Christian world are fairly easy to experience, uh, to get some, some headway uh, because, uh, well, Christ borrowed those ideas from Christianity, from Buddhism, <laughs> in my opinion, that the, you know, the years between age 12 and 28, the 16 missing years is basically an absorption of the Buddhist lineages that pervaded the Central Asian world at that time. And uh, the self-inquisition, the observation or exploration of the nature of the self and the foundations of what we think of as ourself or what we feel as ourself, that's the very transformative side, I think, for, and ch- more ch- slightly more challenging side of meditation for us, us uh, Western people, born and bred in a Judeo-Christian world. Mm-hmm. And then when we start noticing that the self isn't what we think it is, there's this kind of earthquake experience. And I would say that's when, if we come through that successfully, that's when the tree goes from needing a fence to protect it from the goats to being more stable, more strong, and being able to survive by itself, or the garden no longer needing to be tended so so totally carefully at all times. The the Buddhist Buddhist world we say the bringing together of method and wisdom. Method meaning love, compassion, those kind of qualities, and sort of formal meditation practice and formal ethical trainings and these kind of things. And wisdom being the exploration of the nature of the self. Um, That's when those two begin to uh, really synchronize with one another. Can you talk a bit more about that earthquake period? What happens there and what does it mean to come through that? What does it mean not to come through that? I think... uh, for each person, it's probably very differently, but for myself, after three or four years of training in Dharamsala, I did a retreat. And in that retreat, when I was just 
basically is an evening session of meditation. It's kind of very strong, what would you say, sort of being like being washed over with a wave of the infinity of being, like standing in an ocean and being hit by a tsunami, but something of a pleasant tsunami, not a tsunami that drowns you and crashes you against rocks and buildings and so on, but being washed by a very beautiful wave and a great radiance, great joy, great bliss, and just being thrown light years away in a light years uh, back, if you will. And then when one comes out of that, and you come back into the ordinariness of being, that's when uh, things get a little wobbly, if you will. And some people have difficulty adjusting to that. And for some people, it becomes very fearful. For instance, uh, just a few, and right now I'm teaching in Korea, and so some of my, I sent some of my students on a pilgrimage to India to meet the Dalai Lama in uh, back in January, and one of them had a very, very strong experience while meditating there. And on one hand, it's extremely encouraging and uplifting, but at the other time, other time, it's uh, at the same time, it's rather intimidating and how to come out of that and still continue in the ordinariness of being without missing a stroke, <laughs> so to speak. So that was a little bit of a challenge for her, but she's come through very well. And I think for everyone, it's like that. You know, there's some, when you have that kind of total immersion into the so-called non-duality of being. Non-duality just meaning that this sense of self you have as a solid island in the middle of a vast ocean of being. There's me and there's the world. And you notice, well, really, there's not me in the world. There's just a totality of experience, a totality of being. And coming out of that into the piecemeal living of day-to-day -day experience is always a bit of a challenge. And all of them, you know, most of the biographies of peoples who have practiced uh, talk about that and about you know, different problems that come up with it and uh, different ways of solving or getting back into the groove, so to speak. So when we talk about the ten bodhisattva levels, for example, which is a very big topic in in uh, Indian Buddhism, they say the first time you have a direct experience of emptiness, emptiness here meaning infinity, when in that meditation experience you totally lose sight of the world. And when you come back out of that and you get off of your meditation cushion, you completely lose sight of the infinity nature and the world becomes the dominant factor. In other words, duality and non-duality can't be experienced at the same moment at, at that level of training. And so when they talk about the ten bodhisattva levels, the ten Arya levels, it's really referring to how to bring infinity and the finite together in your experience at the same moment. And I think um, for every person who practices meditation in a long-term basis, 
uh, that becomes part of part of the process, and uh, the challenge really becomes when, how to carry deep meditation experience back into the ordinariness of being. Uh, so it's in ways you could call it a process of integration, an integration of the insight gained from those sorts of experience that force one to reorganize the way one operates or an integration of the state experience itself of non-duality? An integration of the reality of infinity Mm. with the conventionality of infinity not being experienceable by the conceptual mind. In other words, when you close your eyes and you think of the sky you get a very big image. If you open your eyes, your eye will tend to focus on the moon or on a star. Yes. And so you're sort of hopping between those two. And in the Ten Bodhisattva levels, the discussion is how to bring the finite, and the, the experience of infinity, uh, which you can get, in, which you can generate in meditation because you relax the conceptual processing. In other words, you sort of suspend the brain, if you will, and have a uh, direct non-processed experience. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's a good word. Tibetan is namtok mepa, non-thinking. But it doesn't just mean that you suspended thinking. It really means that you've gone into a state of beyond thinking. And so you're experiencing completely uh, with completely openly. Now, often in Tantric Buddhism, the, the metaphor is the sexual orgasm. The great bliss, joy, and radiance at the moment of sexual orgasm gives one an experience of totality or the infinity of being. But of course, when one, when the orgasmic bliss passes and we, one comes back out of meditation, out of that uh, blissful experience, then one is back into getting up and putting on one's socks and going out to work or whatever. So how do we experience the bliss of the orgasmic moment? with the ordinariness of, say, working in a factory or driving a taxi or being a banker and making deposits for people and all this sort of thing. So how to bring the infinity of being into the finiteness of the occasion. We see a lot of wonderful popular representations of this. I mean, Herman Hesse's little novelette, Siddhartha is really discussing that, isn't it? I mean, that's really the essence of what he's talking about in Siddhartha. As when one does the spiritual search and one has some sort of experience of the infinity of being. In Hesse's book, it's really the river, isn't it? The river looks like it's something solid, but when you get there, it's never the same. And our self is like that river, we think of my, myself, well, yeah, I'm like River Glen, and there really is a River Glen. But then when we get down, we notice the water is never the same, and the, the sediment in the water is never the same, the banks of the river are always changing, and the bottom of the river is always changing, and there's some water from 
clouds that blew in from China and there's some dust from a, a volcano in Iceland and so on and so forth. Mm. Everything is in that river from the whole universe. And, um, but we don't notice that when we just look at the river. We just say, oh, there's the River Glen. So Hermann Hesse sort of uses that metaphor, which is commonly used in throughout the Buddhist tradition. And, of course, he uses the name Siddhartha, which was Buddha's birth name, right? Yeah. Later he became Gautama the monk and then uh, went on to become thought of as given the title Buddha, one of the awakened ones. So it's the same problem when we notice there is no river of Glen that exists in the way I had thought of as Glen. Then who and what is Glen, and how do I get a grip on being Glen without being, without having to manipulate those waters or navigate those waters on the basis of my old understanding of what and who is Glen. Yes. And similarly with other beings, right? It's like if one is relating to someone on the basis of banker, wife, brother, sister, and so on and so forth. But then when you look at it and you notice the ordinary sense of what that person is, is really just like a moon reflected in the water, another popular image in the Buddhist world. It's not the real moon. So then you know it's not the real moon, but then it's all you have at your person, present level of experience or your present level of insight or whatever one, 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 one wants to call it. Mm. So you're still to enjoy that moon in the water of your brother or sister, your wife, your kid, your grandparent. But it's really just a reflection of a much bigger, bigger reality. And so bringing those two as um, poles, as a Buddha called them, those two, two, uh, poles of experience together is the challenge of integration, which is the discussion of the ten bodhisattva levels, how to be loving and compassionate in a world when the one you're being loving and compassionate with is not really who you think they are. Yes. And Tibetan Buddhism, as you're mentioning, has a whole suite of lineages, techniques, and approaches to that integration and to that uh, marriage of the wisdom and compassion. And one particular set of techniques you've written a lot about are the six yogas of Naropa. And I think I've heard you calling it the lazy man's way to enlightenment. <laughs> uh, could you tell us about the six yogas, how you learned them, and what it means to practice them? Oh, yes. Uh... The six yogas, uh, I've done two books on them, one with, which is a sort of a general introduction and overall view, which sunk up as six yogas of Naropa, and the other is a translation of some associated text, lineage text, if you will, practice of the six yogas, looking more at the practice side. Mm. Uh, I think in early days of Buddhism, people tended to practice one tantra as opposed to another. But a thousand years or so after Buddha's passing, it became popular to weld together, to marry elements from different tantras. So the six yogas is talking about, is really a matter of that it takes 
certain practices from one tantra and puts them together with another related practice from another tantra and then something from a third tantra. So often it's said the six yogas really brings together elements from five of the highest yoga tantras, means the uh, the supreme tantras taught by the Buddha. And with it, the purpose of doing that, I think, is simplification in practice and making the acts. I think in early days, tantra was kept much more secret, and therefore the language was much more mysterious. You know, those tantras, all five of those tantras on which the six yogas are based are called Begyu in Tibetan, which means hidden tantras. And the meaning is hidden in the, in the language. In other words, they don't mean what they say. And they use a kind of a code to transmit uh, so as to maintain some kind of secrecy in the practice. And uh, later... The great Tilopa and Gantapada, these sort of masters from 8th, 9th century India, thought it was time to be a little more overt in the, in the transmission. And uh, so they put together fusion lineages. And a lot of lineages in Tibet are based on that period of fusion. And they really became very popular with the Himalayans. And the six yogas, therefore, is uh, one of those fusion lineages coming from Tilopa to Naropa, brought to Tibet with Marpa, transmitted to Melarepa, and down through the ages and trans went into all various schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So myself, I received my first transmission, I think it was 1974, from uh, Kimchi Trijang Doji Chang, the uh, the so-called junior tutor of the Dalai Lama. Every Dalai Lama has two great teachers and seven sort of assistant teachers. So he was one of the two greats. The junior here just means one One was there and then there, there were two there and one of them died. And so the younger one, the junior one becomes the main one and then they... Take, then they take on another one for lineage. So that's mostly the one from whom Dalai Lama got many of his tantric lineages. 1974, he gave his last transmission of the six yogas, and I was very fortunate to be there receiving them. And of course, some years later, um, received the, the instruction and practice and so on and so forth. So it should be mentioned, though, that the elements of the six yogas are present in many different highest yoga tantras. Mm. The six yogas of Naropa is just a, a manner in which those elements were stripped down to bare bones practice and uh, overt language. Really, the approach to tantra comes from Nagarjuna's Rimna Seldon, Rimna Panjakrama five stages, where in Tantra we're really doing five things. The first is the generation stage yoga, which means mandala, mantras, seeing ourself as tantric Buddha, seeing the body as a temple of a, a, a Buddha, the Buddha me, in your case, Buddha Steve, <laughs> and seeing your world as being Steve's personal paradise, <laughs> seeing all people who come into your world as being emanations of your own enlightenment dream and then of course doing mantra and so on and so forth 
to sort of spread energy and light and good works. Then the second being the tumo or the kundalini, the chandali, the inner fire as it's, it's sometimes called, learning similar to the Chinese qi or qi practices of uh, opening the energy channels at the core of one's being. And that, ex that expands into two sides. One is unconventional reality side of the illusory nature of physicality. And on the other side, the radiance side, which is the, the timeless quality of the radiance of the soul. I like that expression, even though soul is kind of a iffy term to be used by a Buddhist. <laughs> And finally, Zungjuk or Yuganada in Sanskrit, which means the integration of the timeless radiance of the soul with the illusory display that rises and falls on that radiance. So Nagarjuna talks about Tantra in those five stages. The six yogas is really following that outline, but putting it in very simple terms, uh, easy to practice. It really comes down to two things, how to practice during the day and how to practice at night. At night there means deep sleep yoga and dream yoga. And, uh, well, one does a retreat, there's retreats on that, but more important is the daily practice, morning and night, uh, doing some of the tumo practice, balancing the energies, creating a kind of a vajra body, vajra mind environment. So then the basic practice of the world as uh, tantric theater becomes easily accomplished. The, the principle is something like that. Yes. As someone who's practiced that, you know, I have several, several questions. But for example, the, the practice of seeing the world as a tantric theater, this idea of the mandala and the characters being an emanation of one's enlightened mind and, and so on. How tangible and um, transformative is that practice? Because someone, someone like myself who has not practiced those things, I can imagine that if that was to re, if the if a cognitive or uh, experiential shift was to be brought about in that way, that would radically alter almost every way in which one relates to almost every single thing. It really is the basis of all tantric practice. Laginaljor in Tibetan is the name, Deva Yoga, meaning the yoga of seeing oneself and others as participants in an enlightenment theater. Uh, it's often said that as a basis to that practice, one does need to have qualifications from sort of spiritual qualifications, mm -hmm. from the sutra or ordinary Buddhism practice, understanding of Four Noble Truths, for example, and the practice of the three levels of the Trishiksha, ethics, meditation, samadhi training, uh, wisdom, hair meaning, the experience of the uh, illusory nature of the self, our illusory grasp that we have on the tenuous understanding we have of the self, I guess you could say like that. When we say self here, it doesn't just mean oneself, it also means all things, the self of the table, the self of the sky, the self of the mountain, and the self of other beings. 
And so sometimes Sankapa Dalai Lama's, the first Dalai Lama's root guru says we need three qualities. One is inner spaciousness, in other words, less anger, less attachments, and less grasping at the self. And secondly, bodhicitta, which means great compassion for all beings. And thirdly, wisdom, which means a relaxed, a relaxed uh, presence in the terms of uh, this duality syndrome. Mm. Then when we do that, I think when we, from the day you take tantric empowerment, you take a precept or a vow to, from that moment on, see yourself in the light of the enlightenment process. In other words, see yourself as a Buddha form, mm. see others as emanations of enlightened beings and so on. So naturally it totally transforms your sense of self and sense of others and has a very dynamic and dramatic impact on your life. On the same time, it's something, you know, they say four things about tantras. One is it's for those who are ready. So obviously you can't put an order, someone with no background doing that. It just becomes like fantasy. Yes. But yes. If one has those backgrounds, uh, the backgrounds that I just described, then it becomes a very powerful tool in communication and transformation. One of my students uh, in Philadelphia, maybe 20 years ago, he was, uh, sold textbooks and he would go around to the various schools and wasn't very successful. And then he started doing tantric practice, and he noticed that his business doubled within a year. Because before that, people always saw him as kind of grumpy and dull and boring. And then he went from that to being this sort of playful, joyful spirit who they were happy to see. And if you're happy to see one, then you're more happy to do business with them. Just doing business with them, you're going to end up spending time with them. <laughs> And similarly, when we look at other people's reactions, if someone's in a bad mood and they say something rough to you and you answer back in a rough way, that roughness just is self-perpetuating, self isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're relaxed looking at a person, they speak to you in a rough way and you sort of inside laugh and say, wow, what great tantric theater. <laughs> and you reply or respond with humor and openness and joy and some kind of sympathetic camaraderie, if you will. Then it totally transforms the energy. And the same in with one's children and with one's parents, with one's loved ones, if one's married, one's partners, and so on. It has a totally transformative effect on very simple levels, but also on very profound levels. And of course, when we say we're doing that, it's not that this is mere pretense. It's just really that this is closer to the actual nature of being. You know, if we think, who am I? How do we get the sense of self? We get it based on who our parentages are and our genetic sense and our sense of time and space. And then we get it from our education and we get it from our um, belief systems and all these kind of things. And we think this is really me, but it's, those are just tiny little 
debris landmarks floating by in the distant river and we identify with them and that becomes us in our own mind or it becomes what I think who you are in my mind. But in reality, that's just debris floating by that we happen to ideologically um, bind. And if we release those bindings and look beyond them and see, see into the infinity nature, then we're really much closer to an enlightened being than we are to unenlightened being. The great Asanga says in one of his texts, uh, one of the two greatest Indian masters um, on which all Tibetan schools are based, he says in one of his texts, um, Buddha, Buddha mind is ice melted into water. Unenlightened mind is water in the ice state. Both the ice and the water have identical nature. They're just in slightly different states. Mm -hmm. In other words, our Buddhahood is right there with us. It just hasn't melted and isn't free-flowing yet. So Tantra is looking at that side of things and trying to relate to all things in your life based on that higher principle, rather based on, well, there's... Joe Blow and I could make, you know, 300 bucks in this little business deal. Now, there's nothing wrong with making $300 in a business deal, but as you're making it in a business deal, you should also understand that it's the, the free-flowing water of your Tathagata Garbha, your suchness nature, and the Tathagata Garbha of someone else's suchness nature. And uh, 300 bucks is just a very small uh, fragment of that piece of tantric theater. Much like, say, if you play a game of chess, it's like a, just one of the little pieces in the game of chess, which is solely given its meaning based on what you think of it, something like that. A pawn is made of the same ivory as is the king, if it's made of ivory. <laughs> and so... Uh, on the first level of Tantra, it's like that. And we see everything that comes into, on one, you know, so everything that comes to us, we see as an emanation of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, our own gurus, whatever you want to think of it. Uh, rather than think, why is this happening to me? Trying to see it as some kind of process that has meaningful presence in your life and a transformative potential. This idea of life as a chaotic experience where, why is this happening? Why me? Why me? Oh, Lord, why me? <laughs> and so the idea that everything that comes to us is part of our unfolding enlightenment, if we can take it in a very positive, transformative way, we can grow and transform from every experience. But to do that, we have to experience it openly, playfully, humor, humorfully, and then just take it and let it go. Otherwise, negative experiences scar us, harm us, repel us, they make, give us a feeling of repulsion, and positive experiences become addictive, and so on and so forth. So often in Tantra it said no pushing and pulling just resting the mind in the natural, joyful radiance of being. Let all things rise and fall like waves on the ocean. 
And how does one's own personality or one's own mm, uh, the river of Glen express itself from that place of resting one's mind? Because at first glance, it could seem a very passive thing, sitting back apart from it all, uh, watching the theatre from the audience. Is there some sense in which one's personality is in the play? Right. Well, that's very important not to think of oneself as a mem- just as a member of the audience, that one is dramatically and dynamically on the stage, mm. the stage of one's own theatrical life. In terms of engagement, we talk about the four faces of compassion. Pacific, in other words, very peaceful, and then increasing, meaning pushing things in ways that one feels are beneficial to go or transformative to go. Uh, Fourthful, Wong or power, which means being a little bit of a tough guy or tough gal. And finally, Drakpo, which literally means violence. In other words, the four faces of compassion, white, yellow, red, and blue, black. For that reason, many tantric deities in the highest yoga tantra are shown with these four faces. And sometimes just with three of the four, because between power and wrath, there's kind of a fine line between being... Power can also there mean sometimes translated as subduing. In other words, if there's something you don't like in the theater, you have every right to challenge it. And you transform it, and it can transform you. So uh, the idea is that everything that comes into my life comes to me not because it just happens to be debris floating by without any connectivity to the rest of the universe, but it's my little part of the universe, and it's debris that came into my life as in accordance with my own energy karmic flows. In other words, my energy patterns and karmic patterns pervade the whole universe, and the whole universe really swirls around me. My universe and your universe swirls around you, connected to your energy patterns. And when we have a shared experience like this interview, it's our universes come into a kind of an energetic synchronicity for a few moments in time or a few hours in time. So everything that happens to me is connected to me. It's not just random flying debris. And it's up to me to deal with it in a positive, creative way. If I can deal with it in a positive, creative way, then I can release it in a positive, creative way. Now, if we go back to Sutra, the Four Noble Truths, Karma and Delusion, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Suffering, if we hop all the way back to the beginning of our training, all negative experiences come to me because of some negative energies, energy flows, and positive experiences because of positive karmic flows. When negative karmic flows come to me, I shouldn't be intimidated by them. I should uh, just face them bravely and think, well, this is one of my negative karmic flows, and uh, let's see how well I can manage to get through this. And, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. idea. And uh, we also think that if I deal with it negatively, that never, that karmic flow is going to continue flowing with greater strength, what we call the increasing power of karma. 
that, you know, if you treat someone badly today, then you come back tomorrow and they'll be a little angry. So then you'll you treat them badly again. Negativity tends to be not only self-perpetuating, but have an increase, uh, augmenting, increasing factor. And so on the first level of Four Noble Truths, we talk about when something negative comes, if you can face it openly, gently, and not allow negative klesha, you know, anger, angers, attachments, pride, jealousy, and these things to interfere in the processing of that experience, and not to let the negative karmic instinct, in other words, your natural instinct to like punch this guy in the nose or if it's a beautiful lady, just jump on her on the spot without any thought. Not to let irritating things or addictive things throw you here or there, but rather to make your choices based on compassion, openness, and wisdom. And if someone needs a punch in the nose, okay, but out of love and compassion and with freedom and um, meditation and emptiness. And it's a beautiful lady or something and you or whatever, and you, you uh, feel that it get, that is operating not on the basis of klesha and, and uh, distorted emotions, but rather it uh, has clarity, joy, and openness and so on. And Therefore, it's, you can process in a positive way. So anything we process on the basis of klesha, means anger, attachments, and so on, takes a negative spin. So in Tantra, we try to drop doing that in that level, but rather simply to rest in the state of a sense of my natural perfection and your natural perfection, the free-flowing, icy, melted ice of my Buddha nature, the free-flowing, melted ice of your Buddha nature. And then in the exchange, a kind of a, in Tibetan is known as rope lagi nelja, or playful, playfulness, playful deity yoga, mm. and playing with peace or just being chit-chatty, increase, sort of increasing something, some element or power, some being a little bit wrathful and then violence, if violence is necessary. But often in Buddhism we say, unless you've done the Nyenchen, the long retreat, you should be very careful with violence because it can be uh, have a bigger kickback than you're ready to take on. What would an example of a violence be, in, in its good sense? Uh, well, Buddha gives the example in a sutra where he's on a boat and he notices that some guy is going to sink the boat and steal, throw away the lifeboats. He's taking the treasure on the boat and he's digging a hole in the bottom of the boat. There's 500 people on it and they're all going to be drowned. And so Buddha takes it upon himself to assassinate that guy. This is Buddha in a previous slide. And this is often given as an example of love and compassion, not for the 499 who are going to be drowned or murdered by this guy, but as an act of compassion for the person doing it because he karmically is uh, in a, not going to benefit himself by murdering 499 people and running away with the treasure. That'll have a disastrous experience, uh, impact on him. But uh, that's the example given. But as I mentioned uh, only for those on high levels uh, is the is this fourth one 
encouraged in any way, or not encouraged, is this fourth one thought to be an option. But I often mention this fourth one because I'm often asked to give lectures at military bases, or not often, but from time to time at military bases, several times in the States where they want to do, and often in, the, in America, well, people come home from wars and fighting and they have post-traumatic stress syndrome and the idea of in America is that Buddhists can do this without becoming all stressed out and how and why. How can we, how can we have um, violent experiences and traumatic experiences without it becoming totally stressful? Yeah. And I think it really comes down to this Buddhist teaching on the love and compassion for the other not having hatred for that other. Like a policeman, for instance, is in a difficult situation. He's in an alleyway and some girl's being murdered by three people and, and you know, they he's there and he says, stop, and they pull out guns and he's forced to shoot. Now, if he can do it, if he does it with anger or hatred, like those terrible guys raping this girl, that's a terrible thing. They deserve to die, and he does it out of anger or hatred or something like that. It'll it'll scar his mind. If, on the other hand, he thinks, well, you know, the first lady, it's not not a nice way to treat a lady. And secondly, they're in a bad state of mind, and that negative karma isn't going to help them. And. Uh, Thirdly, my own body is the body of the temple of a Buddha, so it's my duty to defend it, take care of it. And so those fellows, uh, sorry about this, but uh, you drew first, bang, 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 and the three of them go down. Or a soldier, you know, fighting to protect his own country. And, of course, England had that with uh, World War II, and it was in a difficult predicament and so on. Mm-hmm. So how to use violence, and it's not possible for humans to live on this planet without violence. We cannot talk world peace, and all that. but um, there's no such thing as a violentless world. There has not been in history, and it doesn't seem like it's possible on planet Earth. Spiders get a little violent with flies, and snakes get violent with mices, and wolves get violent with reindeer. <laughs> it's part of the cycle of the nature of life on this planet. Now in Buddhism we do talk about other planets where that is not the modus operandi. <laughs> but on this planet it seems it's not possible to live without violence. I mean some people can live without violence but only because other people are doing the violence for them. I was watching a news report today where they were talking about gun control in America and you know how a lot of the Hollywood Hollywood celebrities are very outspoken on gun control, but meanwhile they go around with three or four bodyguards who are armed to the teeth. <laughs> so one can shuffle one's violence up <laughs> to others, and in our our modern society we often give that to the police and to the army, but that doesn't mean we're free from it. It's still there everywhere. So how to live in a world in which violence is modus operandi, in a way in which compassion can still remain very strong, and we don't become scarred and hateful through those acts of violence. 
We don't become cold and callous. And uh, the Buddhist response is this little tale of Buddha in a previous life, a kind of mythological story. And when Buddha kills that fellow who was going to kill the 499, not killing it to save, only to save the 499, although you know, that's, that's nice, that's, that's there as one of the factors. Yeah. But, but a very important part of the equation, the compassion for the person doing the act. And I think uh, in that way, uh, tantric Buddhists throughout the centuries have been very strong in social activism. One of the first tantras taught by the Buddha was taught to King Suchandra, the Kalachakra Tantra, who went on to become a great uh, king, with his, by legend, of course, Shambhala, mythological Shambhala, and works out to be Shangri-La, the making of a an enlightenment state. And, of course, King Indrabhuti with the Guya Samajat. So we have many of these practices um, being fully appropriate for peoples and places of great leadership and you know, the trouble. If you're going to be a king, you're, you're going to be a president. You're responsible for the welfare and safety of your society, which means you need to have an answer to violence. And uh, so Tantra has given, and Buddhism in general, and Tantra has given in that, that kind of a light. That So when I speak in the military posts, either in the States to military schools or other countries, like here in Korea, every military post here, has both a, a Buddhist temple and a Christian church, and uh, they may uh, um, some of them actually also have a little shaman, shaman uh, building, and so the, the soldiers should choose one of those three once a week. It's part of their training, and I think that's a very good thing. I think that's a very good thing that the spirituality of violence is a very important element of spiritual success in, in in today's world because it's a violent world and if we just hide from it and say well let the police and let the army take care of it we then something happens we become scarred there's no question is there a danger of compassion or a facsimile of compassion run amok a sort of buddha knows best devouring mother quality uh, whereby one might become so gripped with the certainty of, of one's perspective as the compassionate perspective that uh, one might uh, wield power uh, unskillfully, let's, let's put it that way, in the name of compassion, in the name of protecting people, looking after people, etc. I'm thinking uh, you know, of certain, um, certain political ideologies that in the name of what's good and right have ca- caused much damage, so to speak. Well, it's not possible... To do anything that doesn't have some danger. Yeah. You know, I like to uh, sometimes mention in America, because everyone's so attached to their dogs and their cats, that people tripping over their dogs and cats is, is a very large statistic for deaths and uh, a grievous bodily injury, falling yeah. downstairs, hitting their heads, breaking bones, all of these things. And so people, you know, just went out and bought a gun and shot their dogs and cats. It saved a lot of grievous bodily injury and even death. (laughs) But, of course, we love our dogs and cats, so we don't want to do that, right? (laughs) So whatever we do, there will be some 
there'll be some, uh, from mistakes sometime. Mm -hmm. So we're, at the beginning of every day in the Buddhist world, we look back over our day and we think, what did I get right and what did I screw up on? And one of the things is acts of commission or omission. In other words, as uh, one of the very famous statements puts it, great evil is doing nothing when something should be done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> acts of omission can be as bad as acts of commission. Yeah. And as you state, you know, positive motivation can often have negative reactions. So a very po sort of uh, popular image in Buddhism is uh, Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of compassion or Bodhisattva of compassion who's got a thousand hands, and each hand has an eye, so a thousand eyes and a thousand hands. I, the eye of compassion, the eye of wisdom must always direct the hand of compassion. story I like to quote in North America in the parks, we put up, they put up signs saying, don't feed the bears. Now, one thing, of course, is if you do feed bears, uh, they may bite you, they may get a little excited, but that's only part of why they do that. The other reason they do that is because when you interfere with something, you can easily create a negative side. If something bears get the idea, oh, there's these nice, beautiful humans, and they're very sweet people, very sweet species. And then bear hunting season comes around, and they see a human, and they walk up thinking they're going to get you know, a piece of meat or something, and the guy wipes out a gun and shoots them. So we have to be very careful in our acts of compassion. We practice compassion with wisdom. And uh, there will be mistakes, there's no question. But it doesn't matter what we do in life, there will be mistakes. A kid learning to walk will fall over sometimes. A kid learning to hold things will sometimes break things. A kid learning to play with other kids will sometimes hurt those other kids. There's nothing we can do about that. All we can do is do our best to improve self and others, try to act on the basis of compassion while cultivating wisdom. Now, as I mentioned here, wisdom in Buddhism has a sense of questioning the nature of appearances. You know, so um, I mentioned in reference to how the self appears, also how others appear, how the mountain appears and so on and so forth. So questioning the appearance of things. So in Buddhism, there's these two very important terms in Tibetan, nangchok, tangchok, how the thing appears in my mind, and tangchok, how it is empty of that specific nature, like an angry dog appears as a very dangerous thing in my mind. In reality, the dog is just protecting its own property, and if I can respect how it's protecting its own territory, then the dog and I can get along quite well. That basically this questioning aspect is very, very important in Buddhism. So often we say wisdom in English, I think we think like, you know, King Solomon or David or something like this, you know, the baby, whose baby, my baby, your baby, oh, cut it in half, okay, oh, <laughs> oh no, please don't, she can have the baby, okay, then she, she gets the baby because she obviously likes it more. He may have been wrong. I mean, maybe it was the other baby's, other woman's baby, and, uh, you know, the one who was falsely claiming it figured, well, I don't want half a baby, so I guess it didn't work out. Let the mom have it. 
but because she says that David, you know, screws up and gives it to the wrong mom. <laughs> or was it Solomon? I don't remember which one. I think it was Solomon, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I don't. So, but wisdom in Buddhism isn't talking about that sort of quality of decisiveness, if you will, but rather it's talking about a questioning or doubt that the way things appear are how they actually exist. And I think that's a big asset in terms of what we do and how we navigate the waters of our life. Because anyway, from dawn to dusk, we are committing or we are omitting every moment of our life. We're committing something and we're omitting other things. So at the end of every day in Buddhism, we look in Tantric Buddhism, we look back over the day and we think, what all happened today and this and that and this and that and this and that. Anything happened, anything I did, which I don't feel comfortable about, anything that came up that I didn't, you know, walk to the plate, pick up the bat and hit it the way I wanted to hit it. And so a sin of omission. <laughs> uh, I don't like to use that word sin, but anyway. Uh, but anyway, so the, a crime of omission, <laughs> an ethical failing. <laughs> so we have a lot of those every day. So the great Atisha, whom I mentioned earlier, who brought the Lamrim Lojong traditions to Tibet, that are the foundations of all the schools. He said, don't worry about the big stuff. Take care of the little stuff. When you take care of the little stuff, the big stuff takes care of itself. And at the end of every day, looking back over your day and think, well, yes, the way I handled that, I'm not very happy with that. And then you say some Vajrasattva mantras, and you imagine a stream of water flowing through your body and releasing, washing away any negative feeling of guilt or whatever. I did the best I could with what I had at the time and next time I'll try and do better. But let's wash away that negative energy that I feel from that. And uh, next time with that kind of situation, try to be more attentive, yes. more precise. And things came up that I wish I would have done something, but I didn't. Well, Sorry, it didn't work out, but I just couldn't muster the energy and wash away the negative feeling. And next time this sort of thing comes up, you know, maybe something like a bullying situation or someone, you know, being unpleasant to another person and getting away with it because they think they can get away with it, not stepping up to the plate and, and inter, you know, doing what would be the noble thing to do. <laughs> So uh, to end each day with this, some kind of spiritual practice where you look back over the day and be very honest uh, with yourself. But a couple of things, you're always going to have a few people who are screwy. Uh, there's no question of that. We get that all over the world in every tradition. Yes. You know, if you, it doesn't matter where you go, if you slam the door shut on a supermarket at nine o'clock and gave everyone a psychological test, <laughs> you'll, you'll find that one in five is a little wonky and one in ten is very wonky and one in a hundred is quite wonky and one in a thousand is certifiable. And so there's nothing one can do about that other than try to do one's best from one's own side. And uh, there is a statement by also by the Atisha, 
that it's easier to see a hundred flaws in others than to see one in yourself, but it's more beneficial to see one in yourself than a hundred in others. So take, take care of things from your side as best you can and try not to be judgmental on others. Yes, and the second uh, level that you were discussing there, Tumo, or the Kundalini, Chandali, uh-huh. What um, is the purpose of that particular set of explorations, uh, set of techniques? And as someone who's practiced that, how tangible is it? Um, what is the outcome of engaging with that in a successful way? There's many different ways to discuss it or address it. If we go into the Begu, the hidden tantras, then the language becomes quite mysterious. If we go into the Selgu, the explicit tantras is a little more accessible, I suppose. It's part of what we call building the Vajra body. Uh, The reality is most people walk around with their consciousness being juggled by the objects of the senses, everything we see, smell, taste, touch, hair. And think about, thinking about what we see, smell, taste, touch, and heard. (laughs) And our level of consciousness arises from that. This is called the gross body and the gross consciousness. On a more subtle level, behind that, there's a psychoneuroimmunity system flowing through our body, the so-called Salam Tigle in Tibetan chakras, nadis and bindu drops. A kind of a subtle bodily chem- chemistry. We could say, so often in the modern Medicine we just refer is referred to as a psychoneurosystem, and uh, brain chemistry and thyroidic chemistry and solar plexus energies, sexual energies, and so on. These four, five, six, or seven chakras uh, that are discussed in different 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 tantras. So tuma really just means uh, from the base of our central energy system. In other words, our sexuality coming all the way up to the top of the central energy system, meaning the brain, we often have malfunctions. So these malfunctions are discussed in the terms of energy flows. Energy Energies ride on drops, in other words, chemistry. So our biggest problem is that each of our, let's say, five main chakras if their channel petals, in other words, energy pathways, are blocked, chemistry is not flowing. To put it in a simple way, if your brain isn't releasing enough dopamine, you're going to feel a little unpleasant. Mm-hmm. You need a little touch of dopamine to have that pleasant, happy feeling. And you know, Your thyroids are not working in balance a little bit too much, and you're kind of jumpy, a little bit too weak, and you're kind of listless. Your sexual energies aren't strong. And then if a little bit too much, you're like uh, a bit of a rectum aperture, and uh, too little, and, and your love, your life lacks zest. And so with all five channels, all five chakras, the energy, the male and female energies that flow, we say 72,000 male and 72,000 female energies flowing through those chakras. If energy energy pathways are closed, 
so we say in the navel chakra 64 energy pathways if any of the 64 ways and we express our sexual energy is blocked we become sexually perverted or deviant and we don't now those that's called the wheel of bliss because when you're at sexism sexual energies are very pleasant and they're warm and they're life uh, giving they're you know very energetic and so on a sleepy old dog lying on a porch with uh, you know arthritis and um, ticks and so on smells a young bitch walking in the heat walking down the street and suddenly he feels 20 years younger <laughs> and his tags well, tail starts wagging and he hops up and is uh, looking very enthusiastic about life in general. Suddenly, life has become a very happy situation, much, much happier than five minutes ago when he was just lying there with his arthritis and ticks gnawing him and maybe a bit of mange and maybe an empty stomach. So in that way, if our 64 sexual energy petals, energy channel petals, as they're often called, are functioning well, where a well-balanced, uh, sexually vibrant person. Now, sexually vibrant doesn't mean sexually active necessarily. We have celibate monks who practice tantra, and so they're celibate. But still, that sexual energy has to be in balance, or they've got a big problem. And we've seen that, you know, around the world in all traditions where monks misbehave. <laughs> The Catholics get a lot of flack over it, but I'm sure it's um, pervasive of all traditions. Uh, anyway, uh, unless those 64 energy petals are open then, and the drops, 72,000 male-female drops are in perfect balance there in all 64 petals flowing well, then our life will lack luster, lack zest, lack creative energy, uh, lack joy, lack pleasure. That pleasant feeling you have uh, when you, uh, you look at a beautiful woman. You know, people go to fashion shows not so much to look at the clothes. They like the beautiful women. <laughs> and it makes life feel good. It makes life feel beautiful. And the same for ladies looking at beautiful guys. You know, they can be a little depressed and, you know, this problem or that problem. And they see some beautiful, handsome guy walk down the street and they look up and at least for a moment or two, they feel much better. <laughs> and so that kind of sexual energy is uplifting, even if it's not expressed at all. So those 64 energy petals should be open and the drop, male and female drops, flowing both freely and in balance. In other words, the psychoneuro um, system of, of subtle energies. And similarly from the brain, the 32 energy channel should be fully open and dynamic and uh, all of the brain chemistries flowing. So often in Tantra, we talk about Tumo as the kiss of the sun and moon in Buddhist Tantra to increase the heat of the female force in the navel chakra at the base of the ch channel central channel and uh, which is symbolized by our meta symbolized by a small sun disk 
and it sends great warmth up the central channel, opening the heart chakra, opening the throat chakra, and warming the cool moon at the center of the crown, the brain chakra. And the cool moon suddenly radiates and gets a little warm. And then all of the eight chakras in the brain suddenly start dripping. In other words, they release their own positive energies like dopamine and ephedrine and other brain chemistries that are very beneficial to our sense of well-being and activization of all of our metabolism. So in that way, Tumo is really designed as increasing our feminine force, symbolized by the sun in the solar plexus, which is the our inheritance from our female ancestors, and using that was called the wisdom factor. But the wisdom here doesn't, as before, doesn't refer to a particular kind of a educational or intellectual quality, but rather a state of mind. Pragna here refers to a higher consciousness, like a, a little bit like, say, taking... I know, a quarter of a fifth of scotch, perhaps. The kind of relaxation of the mind and the feeling of openness and joy and pleasantness that we get from a, a small shot of alcohol. And uh, Scottish Tantra. And there you go. There you go. Well, therefore, in Tantric Buddhism, often the masters are shown holding a flask of wine or beer or some kind of alcohol. And in Tantric ritual, this is ceremonially done at the feast where everyone takes a piece of meat and a drop of alcohol. Now, you know, for some people a drop will work, for some a glass will work, the other other people like myself may require <laughs> half a bottle, you know, because, you know, you do have those hard heads who need like a little bit of an extra push to really make <laughs> it over, over the top. So that quality of the, too much really talking about raising our natural femininity, whether you're male or female. And uh, so raising your natural femininity energetically, which is housed in the navel chakra or streamed through the navel chakra and has the nature of fire and the sun and life-giving and joy and all of this kind of playful quality associated with it. And when this happens and comes through the heart, the heart warms and loosens and becomes more open and comes through the throat and suddenly we become more melodious and more more um, beautiful in our expressions. And then it touches the brain and the whole kind of intellectualization and conceptualization process totally transforms. And then this releases drops that flow down and they fall into the sun, the wisdom factor, and make the wisdom factor even stronger. And it throws another wave of light up, radiance up the central channel and uh, warms, the, warms the brain again. And this drops another flood of downward moving. So we talk about the upward moving and downward moving forces. So I'm curious by what means uh, this is done. But I'm also curious, you travel eight months of the year and you've written 30-plus books and engaged very heavily in translation teaching. That's an enormous output, you could say, an enormous capacity. And I'm, I'm wondering if it has some relation to what you're discussing. How much of that is your natural capacity uh, as just the way you were born uh, to have that, that degree of wattage or that degree of output? And how much, if any, uh, is related to these sorts of opening of the petals and uh, freeing of the 
of the capacities of, of the Vajra body as you're talking about? Well, the reality is I'm a little bit of a lazy person and somehow my fate or destiny has just sort of blown me here or there in those, very in those various activities. And I think what is important in life in general for people is to try to find things you really like doing and then the doing becomes very easy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like if you tell a kid, you know, you have to carry this rock across the field, run over there and bring a rock back, a kid won't be that happy to do it. But if you say, oh, there's a bucket of chocolate over there, if you go over and pick it up and bring it back, you can have half the chocolate they get extremely enthusiastic and they'll compete for who will be first. And so I think finding what you like to do is an important, what, what gives you pleasure and fulfillment is very important and energizing. Secondly, I think trying not to be self-obstructive in what you do. Uh, I like a passage by the third Dalai Lama and as, you know, I don't feel I can reach up to the dust beneath the third Dalai Lama's feet. But anyway, to quote something from him, which is, I translated in one of my books on his life, which is a poem he wrote on the night of his passing. He, When he was dying, he called his main students into the temple and then sat in meditation with them and gave them a last teaching. And one of his teachings, one of his verses in that said, People say, I've traveled, written, and done a lot of work. And uh, they say, surely sometimes you become a little exhausted. And he said, I always try to rest my mind in the clear light of the moment of sleep. And therefore, never become exhausted. And uh, I've used that in my life as kind of a philosophy, if you will, that whatever you do, and to quote Marpa, the translator who brought the six yogas of Naropa to Tibet, do without doing, talk without talking, listen without listening, and uh, work without working. I think the, the biggest problem we get with work is identifying with me doing work, uh, rather or with the process of the work or with the objective of the work, but rather of whatever we do, we, we just allow it as a free flow of the energy of our life. It becomes uh, very easy to do quite a few things without getting very exhausted. Mm. Of course, a lot of my books I wrote very early in my, you know, I wrote earlier in my life. And, and um, when I had a lot of time and books take a lot of time and <laughs> energy. So usually you need to give six months to a book at least. And, uh, 10, 12 hours a day. So my 30 books were done largely. Uh, most of them came up before I started doing the intense teaching, intense travel. And I just, uh, in the last decade or so, I haven't really done much with publishing, largely because the publishing world has kind of gone belly up thanks to the internet and Amazon and these people undermining publishing companies and, you know, intellectual piracy and all these kind of things. So it's yeah. very difficult yeah. for small publishers to exist anymore uh, and so on. So I, I haven't done much in that way. More, a lot of my books now are 
I spend more time with those 30 or 35 books when they go into foreign languages. I've got one going into Russian this year. I've already got four or five in Russian and another one going into Lithuanian, another one going into Greek, a couple going into Korean, one going into Chinese. And they take certain babysitting to... I still would like to do another few books, but I think the last decade I've focused a little bit more on film work, uh, video work. A lot of my videos are on YouTube, either uh, made with other people or and things like this kind of interview, for instance. Uh, <laughs> working more with the modern media rather than the old print media style. Yeah. And still, though some country, some places still are very enthusiastic with books, so trying to do what I can in that sphere. And of course, my, a lot of my out-of-print books uh, come up for reprinting, and then they all always need to be revised and uh, that sort of thing. So, But I think uh, when one does sumo practice, kundalini practice, everything in life becomes easier. Also, it's interesting to note that tumo, in all highest yoga tantra Buddhist traditions, is the main practice used in longevity and healing, well-being yoga. It's considered to be very powerful force for staying healthy and uh, not 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 dying prematurely. So they call talk about those two things: health and longevity. And the reason for that, of course, is if you do it, then when the when the brain releases its proper chemistry, then the dopamine come from the amygdala in that region of the brain, which also sort of regulates your stress levels. So a lot of uh, health problems come from living under stress. Then when you're under stress, the whole body becomes thrown out of whack, and because those brain uh, chemicals also affect, say, things like your digestion. Mm -hmm then bad digestion has devast, can have devastating health results when not enough things digested and then too much uh, going into your liver, which is undigested, and toxins basically getting your, your whole liver gets damaged and other, other organs and so on. And uh, it affects your heartbeat and your blood pressure and all of these kind of elements. Your sense of well-being from the solar plexus of the joie de vivre, so so to speak, that comes from a kind of a vibrant sensuality or sexuality in your mode of being, your sort of consciousness, your wisdom aspect, as it's referred to in Buddhism, uh, impacts very much in your health and well-being and your ability to work well and efficiently. So I think those have helped me quite a bit. Mm. But... Uh, you know, one has to also thank one's ancestors for the genetic background. My granddad, age 96, uh, chopping wood, hit himself with an axe and got gangrene. And they said, well, we can take off your leg and you can live for another decade. But he said, no, thanks. Uh, came in with four limbs. I'm going out with four. Either the gangrene gets over or I go out with the gangrene. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, and his older brother died uh, of uh, too much smoking at age 98 <laughs> <laughs> and his younger brother died of, uh, of too much friskiness at age 94 
basically he liked to go out and do all of his own gardening and all that sort of stuff and in the hot sun it could be a little wearying and the the younger brother youngest brother he was one of four died early at the age 89 he was the non-smoker so he died young there's a lesson in there somewhere <laughs> so we i think we have to certainly credit our ancestors for whatever genetic uh, strengths we have yeah. i always thank my mom for the, the british contact and the contact with asia and i always thank my dad for sort of the Irish humor and the Irish uh, joie de vie, so to speak, which is a, a kind of quality which is in, very deep in Irish culture, but also uh, for the genetic side of things, that they were a strong, physically strong and, and uh, um, what would you say, durable fabric, genetic fabric. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so fascinating. You know, I'm surprised that you uh, are talking pleasantly surprised that you're talking so openly and clearly and directly about these things. We've only looked at the first two of the yogas of Naropa, and I'd love to have another conversation one day and explore some of the others and, and, and some other topics that you, you've written about. How is it that you're able to talk so openly? And I think the question anyone listening will, will ask is, and how does one go about learning these things? Uh, well, there are many... Buddhist uh, Tibetan Buddhist centers around the world and Europe and other America and um, Australasia. <laughs> so lineage is important, receiving empowerment. Uh, Sankapa's commentary and the commentary by the second Alama both say Chakrasambara or He Vajra. So one of those two tantras is the best for the Tumo as taught in the six yogas of Naropa. So as I mentioned earlier, every tantric, highest yoga tantra system has a tumo format or a tumo lineage. But the six yogas of Naropa, also the six yogas of Niguma, both uh, are based on the Chakrasambara, He Vajra system. And so any initiation in that in that uh, class, Chakrasambara or, or, uh, or uh, He Vajra, and Malarapa had Gombopa, get his uh, Chakrasambara empowerment from a Sakya Lama, because Milarepa at that time didn't like giving empowerments himself, and he often sent his students to other Lamas. And so he sent Gampopa to a, a local Sakya Lama. Hmm. And uh, it means it doesn't have to be a Chakrasambara or a Vajra lineage directly, in the six yoga line, um, it just should be in that. Of course, uh, myself, uh, I've received empowerments from various schools of Tibetan Buddhism because I lived in India all those years, and you know, I met the previous Kala Rinpoche, who is Karma Kargyu and Tai C2, and present Kai C2, and of course, um, Sakyatrisen Rinpoche. But my favorite lamas were the three great Galupa lamas, uh, Ling Rinpoche, Trijan Rinpoche, the Dalai Lama. And so my favorite lineages come from them. And that's more to do with my karmic connection, I suppose, with them rather than any inherent superiority of those lineages over other lineages. And that's kind of an important issue, I think, what one connects with. Yeah. But... Uh, Anyway, any all the new schools, so-called new schools, the, have that chakrasambara empowerment, and then it's good to get a 
the oral transmission from some lama. Now, a problem in the Tibetan world, particularly Kargyupa schools, is before do it, they become very ritualistic or formula-driven, I would say, in that they'll say, before doing that, you have to do the 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 vajrasattvas and 100,000, you know, the five or six hundred thousands, as I referred, yeah. mundro or preliminaries. And I don't agree with those at all. I think those really have become a sectarian tool in recent uh, in the in the last uh, over the last century, you know, do a hundred thousand karma kargyu windrows, and probably you will forever be locked into the karma kargyu school. Do a hundred thousand drukpa, um, and then it's the same, and the same with kalukpa. Do a hundred thousand kalukpa ones, you'll be locked into kalukpa. Uh, so I don't like those very much, and I think if people do those, don't do them based on the sect lineage. In other words, don't do it with, you know, Vajradhara and the Karmapa or, you know, and Vajradhara and the Drikung Chitsang or don't like that. But rather do it the way Marpa did it, which he did it. He did his prostrations and whatnot with the 35 Buddhas of purification. <laughs> and that's much more generic and non-sect affiliated. I think uh, a big problem in Tibetan Buddhism, a big blessing in Tibetan Buddhism, and a big problem in Tibetan Buddhism is the strength of lineage in the minds of the refugees. And I, I don't think it was that strong in old Tibet. I had a discussion with that with the greatest I think art iconographer in the alive today, Jeff Watt at the Ruin Museum in New York. And he was saying this idea of this adherence to lineage and the lineage tree in the preliminaries is a relatively new phenomenon, just a few hundred years old. And uh, I think the strength of it is, of course, it's made the schools very strong. A weakness is it's also made some kind of sectarianism there. So with my students, I ask them not to do it based on a sect affiliation if they want to do those. And the hundred thousands is not really necessary. That's also, you know, you can do a, a month of um, morning and evening prostrations and a month of Vajrasattva and so on. And then uh, just leave it to those and then or even a week and then do some of the practice. So, but I think getting the empowerment is important. And then uh, if you get a transmission, it would have to be from a lama who just, I would say, just ask for a lung or an oral reading of either the original text from Tilopa or the original text from Naropa, both of which are just... Uh, Tilopas is just uh, two pages and Naropas is just four pages. And so it's basically just a lineage blessing from Tilopa or Naropa. That's what I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Glenn, this has been absolutely fascinating. How can people find you uh, on the internet? Where can they get in touch with you and follow your activities? Well, I do lead groups to Tibet and Nepal once a year. Uh, Tibet and also Bhutan once a year when... Uh, when things come together. In fact, I'm leaving for Tibet in a couple of weeks, uh, Nepal, Tibet. <coughs> and I've got a Bhutan trip this autumn, so if anyone likes to come with me to Bhutan, they can check my website. 
And um, in terms of my teaching schedules and things like that, mostly I just pop them on my Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And uh, I probably should start putting them on my web page, but anyway, I don't. <laughs> I'll put both that, both your uh, website and your Facebook in the show notes so people can, can find you and perhaps go on these trips, uh, attend the teachings. Glenn, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Well, joy and pleasure and great honor and, uh, well, as the expression goes, top of the morning. <laughs> Bye-bye for now. Ciao. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.